We are in a year-long study of prayer, and in this section of our study of prayer, we're going through the Bible looking at various prayers, and this is a, a fascinating one because we see where Jesus is, uh, is praying for his disciples, uh, and it's just a reminder that we're not alone. We, we tend to think we can do life on our own. Uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine, an avid outdoorsman, decided he was going to go backpacking in Wyoming alone. And he's out there in the backcountry, and if you are uh, an avid hiker, backpacker, you know, that's uh, usually not a great idea. Many people do it. Uh, but he decided to go alone. He, he had all the right gear. He had all the right stuff. He knew what he was doing. He's been doing this for years. But as he went along, he was on a particularly uh, uh, rough area, and he ends up falling uh, down this cliff. Pretty severe fall. Uh, so much so that he broke several bones and, uh, and was severely injured. But he's, he is now miles from anywhere. Nobody knows exactly where he is. At least they know the route he's going to some degree, but no one is around him. And so he is there just lying on the ground in the middle of the wilderness. And it's amazing he survived. The only reason he survived was, even though he went alone, he didn't go completely alone. He took a little GPS tracking device. And after the time he didn't show up back to his uh, place he was supposed to report to after a certain time, they realized something must be wrong. And they went and they located him there and they found him. They're able to bring him out and give him medical uh, treatment. He still had very severe injuries, injuries from which uh, some he may never fully recover from. But he's alive. He's alive. Because even though he was alone, he was not abandoned. We go into life, we go into the world, we go in to face the challenges, and we think, I've got this, I've got the right gear, I've got the right experience, I know what I'm doing, I can go about it alone. And so we set off on our little journey and our little destination thinking we can handle things on our own, not aware of the dangers that are out there for us and not aware of our own limits and our own inability sometimes to handle those challenges on our own. But thankfully, we have more than just a little GPS device. Even when we go out on our own, Jesus promises never to leave us on our own, that he will not abandon us nor forsake us, even when we abandon and forsake him. We see this in Jesus' prayer uh, for his disciples, uh, that we see this in the way that Jesus prays, that Peter is one who thinks he can handle life on his own, and he's overconfident. He thinks he can handle it. He knows, thinks he knows what he's doing. Uh, but Jesus teaches him that he can't handle it on his own, and thankfully, he is not. So here we are in this episode near the end of the life of Jesus, and Jesus warns us of the dangers that we are facing. And, uh, and the results of going on our own can be disastrous, but we also learn something really beautiful, and that is that we're not alone. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' warning, Jesus' warning. The first warning that Jesus gives to us is that danger is greater than you think. The world is far more dangerous than you think. Now, here's the scene. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. This is the Last Supper. This is the night he is being betrayed. And he's there with his disciples. He has washed their feet. He has served them. He is now feeding them uh, the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And after he does this, the disciples begin talking among themselves. You know what they're talking about? Who's the greatest? 
I'm the greatest disciple. No, I'm the greatest. They're, they're fighting about who's the greatest. And Jesus has to break up this fight among the disciples. Now you think, they just saw Jesus wash their feet, right? They just had the Last Supper. You think they'd be a bit more serious, but they're th- arguing about who's the greatest. And then after doing that, Jesus then turns uh, to them, to Simon, who also goes by the name of Peter, and he gives them uh, this terrible news, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Notice that Jesus uses Simon's name twice. Now, if you're speaking to someone and someone you know quite well, usually you don't even say their name. But if all of a sudden you say their name to them, you say, Mark, what are you doing? Let me have your attention. You say the name twice, Mark, Mark, listen up, right? And in the ancient Near East, to say someone's name twice was also a sign of intimacy. So what Jesus is doing, he's looking at them going, Simon, Simon, listen to me. I love you, you're my friend, but you need to listen up. What I have to say is extremely important. And so he's seeking to grab his attention. So what's important for Simon to understand is that Satan has demanded to sift him like wheat. Now, I remember growing up watching my mom sift flour. We had a, you know, the little flour sifter, you turn the little knob. Do people do that anymore? I don't know. So, and you turn the little knob and it sifts so it all comes out evenly. Well, sifting wheat was a little bit more of a violent process. You would have this uh, sort of like bucket with a mesh net at the bottom, similar type thing, and you would often, t- oh, actually, it used to be solid at the bottom, and you sort of shake it violently from side to side. And what would happen is the, the wheat would come free from the husk, and the husk would sort of float up to the top, and you would keep shaking it, shaking it, and then you'd take the husk and you'd, the holes and you'd scrape them off and you'd throw them away. But there'd still be some left, so you'd keep shaking and shaking, and then uh, scrape off some more, and then shake, shake, and then you'd get to the point where you could be a little bit of fine husk at the top and they would blow it off, and all that would be trash, so that all that would be left would be the, the wheat, the edible part. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying, Simon uh, says that, This is what's happening. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. He wants to find out what you're made of. He's going to see if you're real. He's going to shake you up, and this is going to be a violent shaking up. This is not going to be an easy thing. He is after you. He's got your name uh, uh, listed, and he's after you. But there's something here that's not as obvious in the English versions. And again, I'm going to make my case that Bible translators should be Southerners. And because this does not show up, because there's no word for it in, in northern uh, or whatever. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's the word y'all, and, and you don't see it here, but it's there. And so here in verse 31, Jesus does not say, Satan has dem- demanded to sift you like wheat. He says, Satan has demanded to sift y'all like wheat. That, and, and, and see, you wouldn't know that, would you? By looking at the text. That's true though. It's a you plural. It's a you plural. And so what he's saying is, Simon, Jesus, Satan isn't just after you. He's after y'all. All y'all even, right? He's, he's, he's after all the disciples. He, he's, 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 he's after you. And, and as he addresses Simon this way, we see that this isn't just true for, for Peter and the other 11 disciples. Satan's after all of those who follow the testimony of Jesus. There's a, a fascinating passage, Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 17. And in the, chapter 12, we have this image of the dragon 
who's out there and he seeks to destroy the baby who's born of the woman. Who's the baby born of the woman? It's always the right answer. Okay, good. Uh, The woman has 12 stars, 12 crowns, so on, baby born. And the dragon tries to get the baby and he can't get the baby. And so then it says the dragon turns his attention to make warfare against the offspring of the woman and her children. And he says the offspring of the woman are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And in case you're wondering who the dragon is, later on in the book of Revelation, it spells it out. It says the dragon who is Satan, that great serpent of old. In other words, he's saying that Satan is after those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He is, you know, it's not paranoia that they really are out to get you. And in this case, he really is out to get you. And what Jesus is saying here is that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle and if you're a follower of Jesus, Satan is out to get you. See, we, we forget. We, we, we look at the world and we see this physical world and, and it, the material world. And it's, we think that all that is real is what we behold with our senses, what we can feel and taste and touch and see and smell and so on. But the Bible tells us, and, and we know this, you know this intuitively, uh, that there's a spiritual world that is every bit as real. Now, the problem is we speak about the physical world and the spiritual world as if they're two different worlds. They are not. There's only one world. And, and what happens in the spiritual world affects what happens in the material world and vice versa, by the way. As we pray in the material world, it affects the spiritual world. And the activity in the spiritual world is affecting what's happening in the material world. Uh, it, it, is, it is all one world. And so Jesus says that there's this powerful being in the spiritual world. He is powerful. He is not all-powerful, but he is powerful. And, and he's a spiritual being who's bent on your destruction. So Jesus says, be on your guard. Satan is after you all, or you guys. That doesn't work. Um, some of you are not guys. So you can't say that. So, but then he turns his attention. He's speaking to, he says, Satan is after you. But notice, he's speaking directly to Simon, Simon Peter. And he turns his attention to Simon. And he says, that, and says to Simon, that, and reminds Simon that he is going to be a casualty of war if he's not careful. That he's under attack personally. But what does spiritual attack look like? What does spiritual warfare look like? And of course, you have images from Hollywood and, uh, and the movies and you know, this demonic activity uh, that is fierce and gruesome. But do you see what the spiritual attack is like with Peter? We just have to turn down a few verses. So if you're still there in Luke 22, turn down to verse 56. And what happened between 56 and the verses we just read is Jesus is arrested. He's, he's beaten. He's taken uh, to the high priest's home. And there in the high priest's home, he's being interrogated. And Peter, after Jesus is arrested, follows along at a distance behind, and he doesn't want anybody to know that he's with Jesus. So he's out there in the courtyard with some other people, warming himself by the fire, and here's where Satan shows up. Verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with them. But he, that is Peter, denied it. He said, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with them for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, 
while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And when he went out, he wept bitterly. Where's Satan in those verses? Where's he mentioned? He's not. He's not. Jesus has said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And he says, and here's the proof, before morning comes, you're going to deny me three times. Morning comes, Peter's denied him three times. So obviously Satan has been sifting him like wheat. Where did he do it? Where did he show up? He's not mentioned in the verses. And that's the, that's the scary thing about Satan. He shows up when you don't see him. He's there in the words of a little servant girl. He's there in the words of the other two men who ask him questions. He's there in the fear in Peter's own heart. Now, that doesn't mean the servant girl was demon-possessed. She was not. Or the others were. The demons were there acting. But it's saying that Satan is working in the ordinary and the mundane and, and the, just the commonplace things of life to trip you up. It is not simply material things that are going on, human actions that are going on. Satan is at work even in those things. See, here's the thing about Satan. He's good at what he does. He's very good at what he does. He's an agent of stealth. He slips in and slips out before you even know he is there, and you, won't, uh, and you will not see him. But he uses the, those things to attack, and he sifts Peter uh, uh, just like wheat in these verses. He's rarely obvious. You know, you, you, don't, you can't see him coming, but here's the point Jesus is making. You can't see him coming, but you know he is coming. You know he is coming. And so therefore, we need to be on the lookout. And that leads us to the next point. Next point is you are weaker than you realize. You are weaker than you realize. Now, imagine this. Jesus is talking to Simon and saying, Simon, Simon, watch out. Satan is gunning for you. And, and so what is, how does Peter respond? I can handle it. I can handle it. Bring it on. He says, he says to him, he says, Lord, I'm ready. Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. He says, I don't care what Satan does. I'm going to stand firm. Nobody can make me deny you. Man, he's got a lot of confidence, doesn't he? He thinks he can handle it on his own. He's gunning for you. You think Peter would be saying, Lord, help. You know, you think that would, and that's what he should have been saying, right? Lord, help. Lord, help. But he doesn't. He says, no way. They can't take me down. He can prison me. He can even beat me. He can kill me. I'm never going to give in. Peter was so confident that he would never give in. He's ready to step into the ring, and, and Jesus just crushes him. Just crushes him with these words, faithful to the wounds of a friend. He says, Peter, you're not going to even make it to breakfast. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not going to make it. Who do you think you are? And Peter's so confident, but he's, he has no idea. You know, former boxing heavyweight champion Mike Tyson said this. says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, everybody's brave on the video game. Everybody's brave in the simulation. Everybody's brave in rehearsal, but you put them in the real thing, the real test, you get punched in the face, the real trials come, and everything changes. Peter thinks he can make it on his own. 
Jesus tells them the crushing truth that he won't. The Apostle Paul warns us that we are no different from Peter. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, let the person who thinks he stands take heed, listen up, lest he falls. You know, you look at people and you'll see people doing foolish, stupid things and you're going, why are they doing foolish, stupid things as if you don't do foolish, stupid things? And we look at people when they give into temptation and we shake our heads at them and go, how can they do that? How can they act that way, not realizing that we are capable of the very same thing. Here's the, the scary truth. You're capable of far worse things than you think. You're capable of far greater failures than you think. Your self-confidence, your bravado, your determination, your willpower will not be enough to sustain uh, your, yourself in the trials. Here, here's the thing about Peter. Peter knew that Satan was after him. He knew he was going gunning for him that very night and he still couldn't, couldn't make it through the night. And here, through the miserable failure of Peter, we begin to see the true nature of Christianity and what separates Christianity from every other religion. Christianity is not about our commitment to God, not ultimately. It's about God's commitment to us. And we see this in our final point, that Jesus' love is stronger than you imagine. Jesus' love is stronger than you imagine. And, and this is a word we need because we are like Peter and we fail. And when we fail, we think all is lost. Let's look again. While Peter's not is a bit naive about the battle he's going to face, Jesus is not. Peter's confident that he's going to give in, won't give in. Jesus knows that he will uh, and that Peter will fail. In Jesus' darkest hour, when Jesus is arrested, when he's being beaten, when he's taken to the cross, Peter will abandon Jesus, and Jesus knows this. Yet even though Peter will abandon Jesus, Jesus promises that he will never abandon Peter. Jesus is the friend who stands by us even when we fail to stand by him. Now, here's the question. If Jesus prayed for Peter, then why did Peter fail? Was, uh, were Jesus' prayers not strong enough to keep Peter from falling so miserably? Was Satan's temptation too great? And I think sometimes we have this image, and it's been popularized in pop culture when temptation comes up. What's the image? You have the, the little devil on the shoulder, right? And you got the little angel on this shoulder. And, and, and the devil is telling you what you should do that is wrong, and the angel's telling you what to do is right, and here you are in the middle. You're listening to both. You're weighing both sides, and you get to decide the final vote. And so the picture there is that God is helplessly standing by, wringing his hands, pleading with you, oh, please, oh, please, make the right decision, that God is powerless in this situation. That is not the biblical image. God is not powerlessly sitting by uh, as we face sin and we face temptation. Uh, while Satan is real... And his power is great. You have to forget, you can't forget he's not all powerful. Notice that Satan has to go and ask permission to sift Peter like wheat. It's the same thing he did with Job. He says, he goes to God and says, God, I don't think this man's got, got it. I, don't, I think he said about Job. Remember what he said about Job, the man he had all those trials? He says, yeah, of course he worships you. You've, you've given him tons of money and good stuff, of course. I mean, who isn't gonna worship you? Take away all the stuff and he's gonna deny you. He asked God's permission. And he's saying the same thing about Peter. Oh, sure, Peter's faithful, but give me, just give me one, one ring, one round of the ring with him. He won't last, he won't last. Now, and so, so we see that Satan has to ask permission. He's not all powerful. But then that raises the question, why does God 
gives Satan permission to do this to Peter. I mean, you think as a loving father, he'd say, leave him alone. Protect him. says, no, hands off. But God doesn't do that. Why does God allow sin and temptation to come into your life? Why does he allow trials to come into your life and hardship? We see with Peter, God clearly allows it. And even though God knows, it's not like God is shocked when Peter fails. He's not God going, ah, I thought he could handle it. Jesus already said Peter wouldn't be able to handle it. So why does God do this? Well, the reason is, as we look carefully, now remember what Satan is doing, trying to sift Peter like wheat? He's trying to separate the wheat from the chaff to show what is real, what is not, and he's gonna sift Peter like wheat to show that Peter is a fraud. He's gonna expose him as a fraud, and what happens? He sifts, Peter fails, Peter's a fraud. Satan wins, right? Satan wins. Peter's exposed. Peter feels like a failure. Think about how you feel when you sin miserably. I mean, we sin a lot, but think about those times you sin miserably, particularly those times. Have you ever been, I know you have, you know situations where you say, I am not going to do it this time. I'm not going to sin this time. I'm not going to give in to that temptation. I'm not going to go to that website I should not go to. I'm not going to yell at my kids. I'm not going to gossip. I'm determined not to do it. Any of you ever made those type of determinations? Any of you ever failed after making those type of determinations? How do you feel afterwards? You feel like dirt. You feel like scum. You feel like, why can't I get my act together? And you, and, and you, begin, to doubt, you begin to doubt whether you're a Christian. You begin to doubt whether or not God loves you. And you begin to think, I just can't do this. And you feel like such a failure. Here's the amazing thing. Satan is sifting Peter like wheat to show that he is not a true child of God. Jesus allows him to be sifted like wheat to show that he is a true child of God. Notice what Jesus prays. He says, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but Peter, I have prayed for you, and yet when you return, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus didn't pray that he wouldn't give into temptation. Notice what he says, I prayed for you. And so what happens is you're going to sin and you're going to fail and you're going to fall miserably. But when that happens, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. And when you do so, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Peter is going to learn an incredibly valuable lesson that we can learn along with him. Uh, You know, Satan says Peter's just a blowhard. But Jesus says, I'm going to show you that he's truly a child of mine. Peter learns, and we learn along with him, that Jesus' love for Peter was never based on Peter's performance. Jesus' love for Peter was never based on Peter's determination to do the right thing, or his willpower, or his commitment. Peter's love for Jesus was based on, Jesus' love for Peter was based on Jesus' love for Peter. Jesus had chosen Peter. He set his love on him. He had prayed for him. And so when Peter fails and Satan seeks to expose him as a fraud, Jesus says, no, he's not. This one is mine. And even after his sin, Jesus says, this one is mine. And so before this, before this, Peter would have had his doubts. Am I really a child of God? Am I good enough? Am I, am I righteous enough? Am I, do I behave well enough? Am I committed enough? But by sinning and being restored, he begins to understand it's all by grace from first to last. It's all by grace from first to last. 
And that's the lesson we can learn along with Peter. Do you remember what happens next with Peter? Now, God's design was to use both the temptation and Peter's failure to show Peter that he was saved by grace. And the next time we see Jesus and Peter together is after the resurrection. And Peter's there on the beach, and, and Jesus walks over to him. And it wasn't the exact next time, but it was one of the later times. And Jesus is risen from the dead, and they're there. And, of course, you know what's going on in Peter's mind is, yeah, I'm the guy who denied you three times. And you remember the question that Jesus asked him? Hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I do. He says, feed my lambs. Then Jesus says to him again, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Third time. And he says, Lord, yes, yes, I love you. And he's probably wondering if Jesus has his doubts. That's why he's asking. He says, feed my sheep. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus restores him and says, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, you're not a cast off. You're not a reject. You're not a failure. You're mine. And I want you to feed my sheep. God used Peter in the building up of his church because Peter was not saved by his own determination, but by grace and by grace alone. Uh, we see this remarkable transformation in him. Now, if Peter had been trusting in his own confidence, that's when it resulted in a failure. But when he understands grace, he learns about the power of God. We cannot handle life on our own. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. And not only that, we weren't made to. We were made to live our lives in communion with God. And thankfully, even when we fail to stay by him, he will stay by us. And the reason we pray is because we know he is praying for us even now. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a great God who loves us and your love for us is not based on us, but it's based on you. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we, instead of trusting in our own strength, would trust in you and your grace. We pray that instead of thinking we could handle our life on our own, which will lead to failure, we would realize that we need you and we should always go out with you. We pray that we become people of prayer as an expression of that dependence. That instead of saying, I can handle this, we'd say, oh Lord, please help me, oh Lord. And Lord, in those times when we fail and we think there's no way you could still love us, may we remember that you have prayed for us and because you have prayed for us, we can never ultimately be lost because we are yours. We thank you for this good news and we praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen.